Thank you, Richard. Lovely to see you. Lovely to see some people back for the first time. Uh, especially welcome. And this morning we're starting down at 502 as well. Got our other venue open for the first time, which is exciting. So I'll be heading down there once I've finished here to go and speak down there as well. Looking forward to that. And no cameras down at 502, which is going to be a relief. But hi to those of you watching through the camera. Well, this is a month of significant dates. March the 8th, last Sunday, was a year ago, our last normal Sunday. Uh, last Sunday of doing things as we would normally expect to. March 11th, World Health Organization declared coronavirus to be a global pandemic. March the 15th, the equivalent of this Sunday last year, we still met, but it was a very different service. Uh, fewer people than normal turned up. It was probably more like it is this morning in terms of numbers. And uh, we spent a lot of the service explaining what we thought we might do in light of the uh, pandemic being declared. And then uh, everything changed anyway, and all the things we said became irrelevant as stuff moved so incredibly fast. March the 22nd, next Sunday, was our first lockdown service. Our first service where we did everything online. And I think back then, I think the first one, our online service was just me preaching to camera, and that was it before we developed our technology a little bit more. And then Monday, the 23rd of March, the first lockdown was declared, and I haven't shaved since. <laughs> so it has been a, it's a month of significant anniversaries. Uh, Another significant date is that, of course, today is Mother's Day, and there's been so much disruption to family life over this past year. I know so many people who have not been able to see family members, or certainly not seen them in the way that would normally happen, and the difficulty and the pain of that. And in the light of all that's happened, we really need to fix our thoughts on what is solid and unchanging, and actually on some dates which are even more significant than the anniversary of uh, since lockdown was first declared a year ago. It's two weeks until Palm Sunday and Easter week. It's three weeks till Resurrection Sunday, Easter Day. And to focus our thoughts on what those dates represent for us is what we need to do. And the plan is that over these three Sundays up to Palm Sunday, we do that by looking at the book of Malachi. Malachi begins like this. Malachi Chapter 1, verse 1, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He is the last word of the prophets. And the name Malachi means my messenger. And we're not sure whether that is actually Malachi's name, that his name was Malachi, my messenger, or whether it was a title that he's been given uh, in this prophecy, but uh, he is the messenger delivering this last word of the prophets, and then there is a 400-year silence before John the Baptist appears on the scene as the next and the last of the prophets and announces the coming of the Messiah. And both John the Baptist and Malachi, with that 400-year separation, call the people of Israel to repentance, call them to follow God faithfully. And the prophecy of Malachi is really, it's a prophecy, prophecy about compromise. Malachi, the Lord through Malachi, speaks to the people and challenges them about their compromise. And setting our feet on the road to Easter means no compromise. Jesus didn't compromise. He followed the road to the cross without 
compromise. And as we spend these three weeks in this prophecy and as we anticipate Easter, what I'm hoping it will do for us is that it will actually call out any compromise that might be in us at this time. Maybe there are things, areas of our life where we are compromising, and maybe pressures of this last year have caused us to compromise, and I'm trusting that this prophecy will help us to see that and come to the Lord again and call out any compromise there might be in us, that we might be on the Easter road without compromise, just as Jesus was. Now, as we get into the prophecy, it's helpful to have some sense of how the timeline, how the history fits together. So let me give you some dates to help you orientate yourself as we get into this prophecy. In the year 587 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians, besieged and took the city of Jerusalem and carried a whole number of the people into exile in Babylon. Later on in the year 539 BC, it's always kind of difficult working in BCs, isn't it? It's confusing working backwards. And the, anyway, 539 BC, the Persians captured Babylon and took over the empire, expanded into the Persian Empire. And in 537 BC, Cyrus, the king, made a decree and allowed the exiles, anybody who wanted to, to return to Jerusalem. And about 50,000 of the Jews went back to Jerusalem. And then by the year 516 BC, the temple had been rebuilt. And thus the 70 years which the prophet Jeremiah had prophesied the people would be in exile were completed. 70 years between Nebuchadnezzar coming and capturing the people and the temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem. Fast forward another 70 years from that, and a Jewish man called Nehemiah is serving as cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah hears that things are going really badly in Jerusalem, and he asks the king permission to return to that city. The year 445 BC, Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, and he spends 12 years sorting things out, putting things in order, calling the people to be faithful in following God. After 12 years, Nehemiah goes back to King Artaxerxes for a time and then comes back again to Jerusalem. And on both these visits that Nehemiah makes to Jerusalem, he finds the people living in complete compromise with the surrounding pagan cultures. And then in the midst of this comes the prophecy of Malachi. And we think most likely Malachi brought this prophecy in the time between Nehemiah's two visits, probably around the year 433 BC. The state of the nation was not good. The temple had been rebuilt, but there was a general spiritual decline. The Persian Empire was all-conquering. It was vast. There should be a picture, I think, of the Persian Empire. It stretched from India to Greece and to Egypt. Can you, put that, can you put that slide up, Jen? There should be a nice map of there you go. The Persian Empire, the orange there, covering that vast area of territory. And um, the Jewish people were poor. They were just there at the edge of the empire. They were a small number of people. They didn't have any kind of military might or, or particular status. And there was great inequality. There were a few who were rich and very corrupt, but most were very poor. And all these pressures were causing the Jewish people to compromise, and it's that which Malachi speaks to. We have um, four chapters now, English translations. In the Hebrew scriptures, Malachi is set out in three chapters. 
There are only 54 verses in the book of Malachi, and 47 of them are the Lord addressing Israel in the first person, God speaking directly to his people. One commentator says that this is a vivid encounter between God and the people, unsurpassed in the prophetic books. God is speaking directly to his people about their compromise and calling them to follow him. So what we plan to do in these three weeks is to take three themes from this prophecy and apply them to us. And the first theme I want us to look at is the question of, does God love us? Does God love us? We've been singing this morning already about the love of God, but it's a fundamental question. Does God love us? If you don't believe that God loves you, it's very likely that you'll start to compromise. I mean, why bother to follow God if you're not sure of God's love? And if you do start to compromise, it's very likely that you'll start to doubt God's love because if you're in a place of compromise, if you're sinning, it's actually much harder to experience and know the love of God. And so, Knowing that God loves us is absolutely essential. And this is where Malachi begins. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? What we see here is a disconnect between God and his people. It's a bit like a a parent and a disenchanted teenager. How do you love me? Where's the evidence I just don't feel it. And you can sympathize with these people having those feelings. They were small fry in a vast empire, and they were experiencing all kinds of material lack, all kinds of need, all kinds of insecurity. And the reality is that the immediacy of the pressures of our experiences in the world can at times feel more real than our experience of the love of God. One of my kids was having a rough time for a couple of weeks last month, and I was chatting with her, and then she said, I realized it was just because it was February, and I hate February. And so I've written in my diary for next February, it's February. You're not going to die. You're going to get through it. It's going to be okay. It's just February. But the reality is of February, you think... She had two weeks of thinking, I'm going to die, because it, and it was not because God had stopped loving her, it was just because it was February, and that's what February's like. But the reality of the pressures of the world can be the thing that we feel with the most immediacy and the most power at times. And as we read this prophecy, we can see that the, this people's concept of God's love had been narrowed down pretty much to their experience of material blessing. And really what they seem to be saying is that the less materially comfortable we feel, the less materially secure we feel, the less confident we are about whether or not God loves us. God says, I've loved you. How? We don't feel it. How have you loved us? And that response is understandable. It's a natural human reaction. The reality is that material lack causes all kinds of stress. If you have material need and you don't know how it's going to be satisfied, that is very stressful. As a community together, we're we're pushing into some big things this year. We're hoping to get our building plans on the way for, for this building. Our planning application is submitted. We're intending to go to tender in the next few weeks. 
if everything lined up, if we have enough money, we could actually start this thing later on this year. But there's also a kind of stress there because we need the cash to be able to make it happen. The reality is we need another couple of hundred thousand at least before August, I think, for us to be able to move forward on the kind of time scale that we might want. And in our personal lives, if you feel a lack materially, a bill comes in, you can't afford to pay. Well, I expect all of us know the stress of that kind of situation. And these people are living under extreme stress. Small fry, vast empire, most of them desperately poor. Now, as we will see, God does promise them material blessing. And material blessing can be good. I like it when I'm materially blessed. I have no problem with receiving material blessing. But material blessing shouldn't be the measure by which we assess God's love. And God actually gives a different measure, a different assessment of how to know the reality of their love. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Jacob and Esau, Isaac's sons, Abraham's grandsons, Jacob who became the father of his 12 sons, the father of the people of Israel. God says, I loved Jacob, I hated Esau. Now, that's a phrase which is difficult and we can easily get caught up on. And there's a lot of debate about exactly what is meant there. Is this an absolute declaration or is it relative in terms of uh, comparing love and hate as I really prefer Jacob and it's, uh, Esau was all right. But in comparison, it's a kind of a love and a hate thing. It's a Marmite thing. We shouldn't get too hung up on that. The main point is that God loves who he chooses. God loves who he chooses And God had chosen these people, and so they should not doubt his love. The obvious question that arises from that then is, well, how do you know if you have been chosen by God? We have just spent 10 weeks in the book of Ephesians, which gives us many reasons to know and be sure that we have been chosen by God. Ephesians chapter 1 begins by talking about how we have been chosen, predestined, adopted. You were included when you heard, when you believed. I think the evidence that God has chosen us is our belief. If you have come to believe in Christ Jesus, the only way you have been enabled to do that is because God has chosen you for that. Now, our belief at times can feel shaky. Our levels of belief can go up and down. I think this is one of the reasons why the Lord has given us baptism. There can be times when we say, I'm not sure how much I believe right now, but I know I have believed, and my baptism is evidence of that. I know I got wet. I know I got wet. I know I got wet in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I know that I was plunged in the water and raised up to new life, and so I'm certain, I know, that God has chosen me. God has chosen me. God's love remains. And because these people were measuring God's love by material blessing rather than the certainty that God had chosen them, that left them to all, to vulnerable to all kinds of doubts. It left them vulnerable to doubts when they saw 
injustice in their society, left them vulnerable to doubts when they saw people who were unrighteous who seemed to be doing better than those who were seeking to be righteous. It left them asking the question, why bother? When Nehemiah came to Jerusalem, this is the situation he found, described in Nehemiah 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. There was incredible poverty and incredible injustice, and these people were experiencing terrible things. And often in the world, it does seem that it's the corrupt, the unjust, who get ahead. And that can make us question God. can actually make us very cynical. If we start to ask those questions and entertain those doubts. Why is it that the unrighteous seem to be the ones who are most comfortable? Why is it that good people are suffering in the way that they are? It can make us cynical, and the Lord speaks to that. Malachi 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them, or Where is the God of justice? The questions these people were asking because of the reality of their experiences had led them to a cynicism which had caused them to doubt God. Is God good? Does God see what's going on? Does he love us? And that seems like a reasonable question to ask. There are so many people in the world who suffer unjustly. It might be a question that you've asked this past year. There are all kinds of things which have happened as a consequence of this year which might make us ask that question. It's, as always, it's the poor who suffer. Those of us who've got secure incomes and stable jobs, actually this year, in many ways, it's been okay. We've still had our income and we haven't been doing the things we'd normally do, so maybe we've actually got more cash in the bank than we normally would. But it's the poor who suffer. Saw some stats the other week about how there's something like 7 million households in the UK have got loads more money in the bank than they did a year ago because they're not going out and doing the things they normally do. And there's an equivalent number of households who've had to borrow more money than they normally do. Because if you're a poor single mum working in retail or hospitality and all that work's gone, what do you do? It's always the poor who suffer. Or we think about the impacts upon the environment. You might have seen the reports this week about coral reefs being submerged in plastic from disposable face masks. And so there's all kinds of things that have happened this year which might make us, like these people, say, why the injustice, oh God? Why? Where are you? Does God see? Does God really love us? We doesn't always feel like it. And... The doubts that they had had very practical impact. Their questioning, their doubting, actually was a a doubting not just of the love of God, it was doubting the very character of God. It was questioning God himself. And that led them then into all kinds of compromise. And we see that in what are probably the best-known verses 
of the prophecy. Verses which are often taken out of context, but which nonetheless are important. Malachi 3, verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty." God says to his people, test me, trust me. Are you going to keep compromising or are you going to be all in? And the people's response is, well, life is so hard. We're afflicted on every side. We haven't got enough of anything. We're not sure, God, that you actually love us. So we better hang on to what we have. We better be our own salvation. And God responds and says, look, you've got it all backwards. Self-salvation is the road to ruin. Compromise isn't going to get you out of your problems. Actually, the way out of your problems is to trust me completely. Trust me. Believe that I love you and then experience the blessings of that. Now, there are lots of good reasons for being generous with our money and tithing, but here's the main one. That God doesn't want us to be under a curse. To not be confident of God's love is to be cursed. And the way of no compromise means that we trust in the Lord's ability to sustain us. It means we trust him. Without compromise, it means that we go all in. Whatever pressures we might be under, and these people were experiencing extraordinary pressures, we choose to believe in the goodness and the love of God. We choose to trust him with all that we have. Malachi asks with the question, the statement, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? How do we know that God has loved us? We know that God loves us because we know that he has chosen us. If you have been baptized, that's a sealing, a defining moment. It's the evidence of God's choosing of you. If you haven't been baptized, get baptized. Step into that certainty of God's choosing of you. We know God loves us because of our history. We can see all the millennia of God's faithfulness to his people. We see it in these stories. We see it in the centuries since, the millennia since, that God is faithful to his people, that empires rise and fall. The Babylonian Empire came and went. The Persian Empire came and went. All the empires come and go, but the people of God remain because we are held and sustained and kept by a God who loves us. And most importantly of all, we know that God loves us because 
the Lord has come. Malachi 3 verse 1, the Lord says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. The thing that we know is that he now has come. This prophecy came 400 years before John the Baptist appeared on the scene announcing the coming of the Messiah and before Jesus appeared to the people. He has come. We know that Jesus has come. And he came as one who did not compromise, but set his face to the cross. And so we can know that God loves us because of the cross. We look to the Easter road and we look to the cross. We see the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, which has lifted the curse from us, which has dealt with our sin, which has brought us into communion with God, which has made us heirs of the promise, made us children of Abraham, sons of Jacob, made us people who have been chosen by God. We look to the cross and we say, yes, I know that God loves me. Whatever's happened over this past year, whatever happens in the coming year, whatever circumstances of life they might be, whether we're experiencing material blessing or material difficulty, whether we're feeling in a period of grace or standing under pressures, whether we're experiencing what just seems to be ease and blessing or whether it feels like an evil day, we can be certain, we can know, we can be sure God loves us. Yes, he's chosen you. Yes, he's been faithful through the millennia. Yes, The Lord has come. The cross proves it, demonstrates it. God, without compromise, loves you. And so this morning, open yourself again to the love of God. It might be that you haven't been feeling it. It might be like these people. The Lord says, I've loved you. And you're saying, how? How? Well, stand again in confidence that he does. Receive it in faith. Step into it. And ask him to show it to you. Don't compromise, but wholeheartedly, completely, entirely give yourself to the Lord, believing in his love and his faithfulness for you. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God, thank you that we can be so confident that you love us. Thank you that the Lord has come. Thank you, Jesus, you went all the way to the cross. And as we look at the cross, as we anticipate Easter, just three weeks away, we know that we have this amazing security of being a people chosen by God, loved by you, and that you are faithful. And so I pray for us. I pray for those here. I pray for those watching at home. I pray for those for whom this has been a tough year, those who have experienced insecurity, people running their own businesses and the challenges of that and, yeah, the people who just having it tough in all kinds of ways, people who felt so lonely and isolated, people wrestling with mental health problems and all the issues that have come because of this past year. I pray, Lord, that each and every one of us would not allow the immediacy of the pressures and problems of the world to be the thing which shapes our beliefs above and beyond all else. But above and beyond all else, we would be a people shaped by the certain knowledge of God's love. I pray that we'd step into it again, receive it, 
celebrate it, that we might be a people who live without compromise, proclaiming the goodness and the glory of the Lord who has come. Amen. Let's worship him.